So I always encourage them to keep your momentum, you know, and that's one way I got through medical school with the two babies at home is I would be on the wards for my clinical rotations and I go straight to the library, study for two hours so that I could be prepared for my um, unit exam. And then, then I would go home with a clear conscience that I could play with the kids and put them to bed and not be as stressed out. So, so I think that, that work first then play motto can go a long way. Good morning, everyone, and welcome once again this week to the Warrior Queen podcast. It's such fun for me to keep meeting these wonderful Warrior Queens and to know that they're all around. We have an army out there, and I love introducing you every week to a different one. Well, this one, Gwen Lopez-Cohen, is quite an amazing young woman. She has been an honor student of physiology and neuroscience, NYU School of Medical Grad, and she has also done child psychiatry residency at NYU, Bellevue Hospital Center, the Yale Child Study Center and Advanced Residency in Community Psychiatry, and the Connecticut Mental Health Center. She's worked with autism. She's the medical director of the Bridgeport Juvenile Detention Center. She's worked on Asperger's syndrome treatment for young adults at the Chapel Haven School. 2012, she started her private practice in Westport. She's also earned a master's degree at Bank Street College of Education in New York City, majored in South Asian studies at Barnard College, and is an avid student of Bharatanatyam and Sanskrit. Isn't that amazing? But I could go on and on. She is a member, um, an esteemed member of the American Psychiatry Association Assembly member. She's involved in the community programs of Fairfield County Stamford Jewish Community Center. And I keep seeing the word community. She's all about community of giving and sharing. And I just want her to tell us how has she managed and what makes her so self-assured and so empowered and so hardworking. And she's also a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, but above all, she is literally like our film, a warrior queen. She is the warrior. Welcome, Gwen. Thank you. Thank you. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> Appreciate it. What makes you so empowered and self-assured and hardworking, Gwen? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, you make it sound easy. I think that uh, I, you know, I feel very fortunate that I've had many opportunities and uh, you know, I had a very life-changing experience when I was um, in my 20s, the year that I had graduated from college, I was teaching uh, at a girls' school in New York City, and, and very unexpectedly, my younger sister, who was two years younger than me, passed, passed away. And it's actually a very timely recording because uh, my sister was 20 when she passed, and she would have turned 30 last Friday, and it was a random accident. Uh, but I think it was an opportunity for me at a very young age to realize how precious life was and how important it is to really make the most of every day that we have here on this earth and, and to try to make an impact in my life on, on the community and build a family of my own. 
That is so well put. And you have literally turned a grief path into one which was not left meaningless and you made it so meaningful, almost as an ode to your sister. So thank you for sharing that. I also see you are a self-starter. So when you say you had opportunities from what I have read and known, you create opportunities. So you have been a student, a teacher, you decided to go to medical school, you're a mother of five, you're a child psychologist. How do you juggle home and career? <laughs> so yes, well, it's busy. I, I guess what I would say is that I, you know, I feel that I was very fortunate to have, have these different opportunities that I, I was able to take advantage of, beginning with, uh, you know, as a South Asian studies major, Barnard, and my advisor was a very well-regarded uh, scholar of Sanskrit and South Asian culture, Dr. Barbara Stoller Miller, uh, who unfortunately passed some years ago also um, from cancer. But in during her scholarly career, she did several very well-regarded translations. So with a, a major in uh, South Asian studies and a focus on Sanskrit, I did not have a lot of career prospects after my bachelor's degree. And it was a phenomenal uh, twist of good luck that I applied for a teaching job at a private girls school called the Brearley School in New York. And my professor and mentor and advisor, Dr. Miller, had sent her daughter to Brearley and wrote my recommendation. And I didn't know this when she wrote the recommendation. So, so I got the job, which was a, a tremendous stroke of good luck. Uh, and really, I enjoyed a, a five-year career as an elementary school teacher kicked off by Brearley's mentorship, and they offered some funding for me to get a master's degree in education and get situated as a classroom teacher. And it was the, you know, the unexpected loss of my sister. And then also many of my friends from undergrad from my South Asian studies major classes were pre-med. And so they were a very positive influence on me. And I watched them go off to medical school and I realized that, uh, you know, as much as I enjoyed education and teaching, uh, that the challenge of science and medical training was something that, that I felt very excited about. And then, you know, to make peace with the loss of my sister, really wanted to devote my time and my work to the preservation of human life, which is really, you know, the, the mission of all, most physicians. That's, that's one of the driving forces in medicine is to promote life. Absolutely. And why push those boundaries between teaching at a school like Brearley? You were also a science teacher. You were teaching chemistry to young women. Uh, they looked up to you. Why then med school at NYU, which is a very, very long struggle and many hours of work with leaving you no free time, not even to date. So I would love you to share that part of your life and um, what made you decide to follow through apart from the passion of of course giving back to the community yes yes well i i think that i've always enjoyed school and learning i've always been a little bit of a nerd and so the uh the process of studying and learning new things was exciting i really liked the challenge of uh, you know, with in medicine, there's always another test to study for. <laughs> so you have this sense of purpose that's very concrete where, uh, you know, you have this information, you have to master it and, and perform on the test. 
And, and I did truly love teaching, was very passionate about it. And so when I was ultimately accepted to medical school, it was a, a tough choice to, uh, to say goodbye to the classroom and, and become a student, full-time student again myself. Uh, and I cried on that last day. I was a first grade teacher uh, at the Browning School when I knew that I was going to uh, leave teaching and devote myself to my medical studies. And, and, and I was, it was a, a big decision. I think uh, medicine as a career, I felt it offered more flexibility, especially for women. Uh, and, you know, certainly different um, uh, range of income potential. So I felt I could be more independent, uh, you know, as a, with the career as a physician versus a career in education. And I think most importantly, I, I felt so honored to have the opportunity, you know, it's very hard to get into medical school. And so once I was accepted, it, I felt there really wasn't a choice. If, you know, you're given an opportunity like that, I felt I, I had to take it. So Absolutely. Well, the community, I'm sure, has benefited greatly. Now, what, in your opinion, prevents women from reaching their full economic potential within the existing system? That is a complicated question that I wonder about myself. I, I think that, um, the, you know, both myself and many of my colleagues in the process of balancing family and career will often uh, choose career paths uh, that were that are better for the family and less advantageous economically. Uh, so I know uh, you know I've enjoyed very much my involvement with Yale uh, Child Study Center, and I, I did some research there, and I stay on the faculty and supervise the residents. And and you know the income from academic medicine is is notably less than the private practice model. Uh, however, it, it offers, I think, more flexibility with timing and and greater career satisfaction. And so, you know, in um, in talking with my colleagues, I have found even with my colleagues from fellowship uh, and residency training that many of my colleagues, especially who are mothers and want flexibility to be able to be more available for their family, will often take institutional jobs with a salary versus a private practice job where they're running a business and generating a, a greater level of income, but have um, many more hours of, uh, of work and less flexibility. Uh, so I, I do think that's a, a significant factor is that, you know, even in our modern American culture, I, I do think that the, the traditional values persist and that in many families, there's a traditional distribution of labor where where one parent is the primary parent holding down the home front and managing children, at, regardless of having a career or not. So and I do have have one colleague from medical school who I'm very proud of, who's uh, she's a medical oncologist in Philadelphia. Her name is Dr. Betsy Plimack, and she and her partner, they made a, a decision that she would be the primary breadwinner. And so she's had a very uh, successful, both economically and academically career as a medical oncologist. But she's had a partner who's been at home full time, who takes care of the children in the home. So I think, you know, that in that model, too, if there's a, uh, a distribution of labor in that way, then it does make um, it opens the door for women to pursue greater economic success. Wonderful. So I guess you do feel that men and women should have equal responsibility in child rearing? Or would you say one person should take the back seat? 
Well, in an ideal world, it should be, of course, shared, but I do think that there are certain, I don't know, maybe uh, societal factors, biologic factors where uh, there's a lot of pressure, even, you know, in, in modern society for, I, I, you know, I think that uh, while mothers are still carrying the pregnancies and, and nursing young infants and that, you know, it, it is ideally everything should be shared, but, you know, rarely is are things split 50-50 right down the middle. That's really uh, good to know because, you know, in the field that you are, you're at least addressing it because America generally feels that Americans have got everything down to a perfect science. And sometimes South Asian cultures and third world countries um, are still struggling with uh, trying to empower their women. And I have often felt that American women need a lot more empowerment as well because they are not given the same uh, support of a nuclear family that actually sometimes South Asian homes have. Uh, you know, where where the sister and the brother and the grandparents and everyone jumps in to help in nurturing the home. So how did you rear five children? I really think all the audience would love to hear how you managed your career, your very successful private practice. Uh, you lived in Westport. You have four beautiful sons and a gorgeous daughter. They have all been... Um, not just delightful to know over the years, but such amazing human beings that you have uh, nurtured. And we would love you to share those uh, uh, hidden gems. Yeah, so I, I was fortunate that my mother worked outside of the home. She was ahead of her time. She had um, earned her master's in business administration and was a chief financial officer and worked in venture capital in the 1980s. So I had a model of, of you know, two parents working outside of the home that I grew up with. My father um, was an engineer. Uh, so, you know, I, I always expected that I would have a career and, and would have a pursuit outside of the home. And, you know, in my family, we all pitched in growing up. So my sister and I would cook dinner for my parents so that when they came home from work, there was a meal ready. Uh, and then uh, when my younger brother was born, we started having a like an au pair living with our family. So I also grew up comfortable with the idea that it was okay to have other people help, which I think a lot of women struggle with that, uh, you know, I think two of the best pieces of advice I've gotten from other mentors, um, one, um, Dr. Uh, Sadak, a yeah, very successful psychiatrist at NYU who raised a family and had a, has a career as a psychiatrist, told me when I was a medical student, she said, well, if you want to work outside of the home, you need to have a wife at home to help you, <laughs> which is effectively, you know, a nanny or a babysitter, or housekeeper, somebody who can get things done while mom is engaged in her career. Uh, and then another really helpful piece of advice is that, uh, you know, another working mom said to me when I was trying to find a caretaker, because I had Jacob, my oldest son, when I was a medical student. So I was working very long hours and I just, you know, you can't, I couldn't be there for him all the time. And I was feeling very conflicted. And another mom looked at me and she said, well, Gwen, no one's ever going to be you. And so I think as soon as I accepted that, that sharing in the work of caring for my children meant that I had to be flexible that, that they were going to spend time with somebody who wasn't me, who wasn't going to do things exactly how I would do them, but would do them differently and, and in an equally positive way. Uh, that, that gave me the, um, the mental freedom to then focus on my career uh, with the peace of mind knowing that 
my kids were being cared for. And then I was also very fortunate that my parents were supportive. And so they came and spent a good deal of time uh, with uh, my children when I was in my residency. Uh, they, uh, I was in New York and they were in the Boston area, so they could come up uh, and they were the pinch hitters. So anytime I had a babysitter who was sick or once my babysitter had jury duty, I was very stressed about that. My mom showed up. So I, I think that, you know, without, uh, without a, a community supporting a family, it, it is very hard to have two careers. Wow. How do you foster a positive environment in your own workplace? for other women and your colleagues and co-workers? So, well, again, I feel fortunate that while I'm in private practice, I'm in an office building where it's all other mental health providers. And we have a very collegial atmosphere where we uh, will um, we'll take breaks together. And when we have complex cases, we'll support each other. You know, I think that, that the, the important thing is for people to have a, an open, attitude that's that's accepting of others and and to to help out like one afternoon there was a knock on my door it was the psychologist downstairs and she had a suicidal patient in her office and and she knew what to do intellectually but she was overwhelmed and so you know i i took a minute out from my session and we stood in the hallway we kind of problem solved and and she went downstairs called the ambulance and took care of her patient but i think you know, having that kind of sense of community in my office building really uh, is wonderful too, where we, we are all here for each other and can support each other. That's wonderful. Um, I guess that does answer that if you had to give me one example that stands out on where somebody empowered you and you empowered somebody else. If you could just tell me anything that that really was life-changing for you in a piece of advice. Right, well, so I will say, I found out somewhat unexpectedly that I was pregnant with my third son, Ben, when I was an intern. So I already had two babies at home that I'd had in medical school and I had a third on the way and I was in the elevator and one of my mentors, an adult psychiatrist at NYU named Dr. Molly Pogue, looked at me and she said, oh, how exciting, you know, and I said, yes, but I'm a little worried, you know, this is number three and I'm an intern and she looked at me with a big smile and she said, you know, it's always a good time to have a baby. And that just meant the world to me because I was, you know, receiving a lot of criticism from some of my classmates, like, really, you know, what, what, how could you do this and where's your commitment to your profession? And so I think, you know, as women, when we support each other, it goes such a long way. And at that moment, I felt so free that, you know, that there was somebody else out there who acknowledged that, you know, it's very important for me to have my own family in addition to having a career. And because I started when I was young and in my training, I was able to have five kids. You know, if I had waited, I, I don't know that that would have been possible. Uh, and then, you know, as far as empowering somebody, actually, I got to pay it forward because I mentored a, um, a medical student who she'd been a research assistant at Yale and then went to medical school at Quinnipiac. And she called me in her internship year. She graduated and was doing a um, psychiatry residency and internship, and she was pregnant. And she said, I don't know what to do. I'm pregnant and I'm overwhelmed. And I said, it's okay. Like, you can figure this out. I said, if you need to take time off, it's fine. You'll go back. If you want to keep working, it's fine. You'll get help at home. I said, you know, whatever path you choose, it will work if you just stay positive and keep focused on it. Wow. 
you definitely have had an outreach and an influence on so many women, and they're lucky to have had access to you. What does success mean to you, Gwen? So I think success is, you know, at the end of the day, being able to go to sleep with a clear conscience and feeling like it's been a, a productive day that's made the world a slightly better place in some way. That's that's an important way to say because success is so different for every single person. But since you deal with so many mental health issues from autism to anxiety, depression, OCD, mood disorders, behavioral disorders, uh, and so many uh, syndromes, not just for children and adolescents, but even adults, do you feel that there's more that can be done today to help for mental health? because that seems to be the biggest problem we are facing, not just everywhere and at work, but everything that happens, there's always either depression or anxiety all around. And how is that you as uh, you are in this profession, advise somebody uh, because you see it in corporations, organizations, you see it at home, you see it in the classrooms. And it's on both sides. It's with the students feeling it, it's the teachers feeling it. There's pressure on how you can teach anymore. Employers feeling it, employees feeling it. So how would you advise, since you have worked with so many, that what is the solution in the long run? Right, well, I would say, you know, that a percentage of people who struggle with depression and anxiety, they come by it honestly, it runs in their families, that these are biologic disorders, that, are, that there is a genetic component and they are inherited. And so very often I'll meet people who are depressed or anxious and, you know, on paper they have everything, but they just internally are experiencing tremendous anguish. So I do think a significant percentage of, of psychiatric illness in our country is is uh, genetic and biologic and and that uh, these things are going to happen regardless of which path people take. Uh, but you know, given the uh, increased rates of depression and anxiety with the pandemic, we also know that the environment does play a role and that excessive stress in the environment can exacerbate pre-existing conditions or can cause uh, situational depression and anxiety. So I do think, that uh, you know, there has been an increased focus. I, I know in the town of Westport, in the schools, they're focusing more on mental health. There you have a um, a wellness curriculum that came that was developed at Yale. It's, it's called the Ruler curriculum that the teachers are being trained in, and they're allocating more time to this concept of health and wellness. And I think this idea of being proactive rather than reactive, and you know, making time for exercise, for sleep, for socialization, for recreation. Is I, I you know I don't think that that has been emphasized enough in our American culture. I think in some other cultures there's more of an emphasis on, on time for family. And uh, I know you know Americans are always um, speaking about the amount of vacation that Europeans have. That they are given you know much longer blocks of vacation and maternity leave and paternity leave. And so I do think that the pandemic has made us all more aware of how essential it is to preserve our health and wellness and you know not to just keep going 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 until there's a problem but to be proactive along the way and so i think just you know making time every day for some relaxation or i, I know i try to read every night for 10 or 15 minutes it's not a lot but it gives me a mental break 
Um, time out in nature is very soothing for me personally. I try to walk outside whenever I can. That sounds wonderful. Absolutely. But sometimes, I mean, I'm from the generation that, yes, we worked, but we did balance a lot of things. Would you say that that has also been taken to an extreme where a lot of the younger generation believes that they are more entitled to a lot of free time because there is no work ethic that you see necessarily where they can come in anytime, go anytime, be in their pajamas. That's all great for mental health. But what about the employer's mental health? <laughs> right, right. That is true. And actually, you could make the argument that that not having enough structure is is not helpful. Right, which is what I'm trying to do because we have seemingly our generation, of course, everyone has mental health, some have, but we've done pretty well without having so much of free time and reared families. So I would really like to know whether as a community, one can help the new generation uh, understand the responsibilities and have time for themselves. Absolutely. But to be able, the word is that fine balance or yeah. what is what is too much or too little and how every generation can predict what that too much is. Right, so, right. And it's different for every individual too. Like you'll have your honors student who plays three sports, who's perfectly happy. And then you'll have another student who gets stressed out because they're trying to be in the school play and take an advanced placement class. And, and you can't really say that, you know, one is, is, is better than the other. I think they're just different scenarios where everybody has their different set point of Absolutely. what level uh, that they can sustain. Uh, but I do think that, um, you know, for children and adolescents, and I know with my own kids, I've really tried to encourage them to just to be engaged, to use their minds, to connect with others, and to stay active uh, it, the, away from electronics as much as possible too. I think that's another tremendous challenge is that, you know, my uh, my four-year-old was born into an electronics generation. You know, they, they think that when you need something, you say, hey, Alexa, you know, <laughs> order me some more double uh, A batteries or something. It's a very different world for, for this set of technology kids and so absolutely you know teaching them to turn off the electronics and you know bake cookies or let's go outside and collect pine cones for a project or uh you know just reminding kids um actually it was so refreshing i met this uh, high school student and i said what did you do over the summer and he said oh you know my friends and i we went down to the ocean, we went fishing, we went swimming, we rode our bicycles around. And I said, this is amazing because so many of these kids are, you know, they go to the airport and they're put on a teen tour where they're driven all over the country or everything's done for them. And so I do think teaching uh, teaching kids how to organize their time and, and make a plan and execute a plan goes a long way with, to becoming successful in life. Absolutely. So how would you advise someone on tips that you give them to not procrastinate on a project, you know, for youngsters, for adults, because you obviously set yourself out, you finish your projects and you go to the next one. 
but in a very calm manner. <laughs> well, I wish it were always true. I actually always procrastinate with my paperwork. And so I use that as an example for my patients with their homework. I say, look, nobody likes to do tedious work or boring work. And so one you know, good rule of thumb is to always work first, then play. So to set a reward. So if I have some particularly onerous, you know, insurance prior authorizations, I'll do those first and then I'll make the phone calls that are more fun to make or, or, uh, you know, give myself free time if I can, you know, I think setting goals and then having an incentive to meet the goal, you know, whatever that, whether it's, you know, saying that, okay, if I finish writing these notes, then I can turn, close the computer and, and do something fun for half an hour before bedtime. Or uh, with students, I think, you know, with homework, a lot of students come home from school, they're tired, they want to have a snack, they start watching the Netflix, and then it's very hard to get started again. And so I always encourage them to keep your momentum, you know, and that's one way I got through medical school with the two babies at home is I would be on the wards for my clinical rotations and I go straight to the library study for two hours so that I could be prepared for my um, unit exam. And then then I would go home with a clear conscience that I could play with the kids and put them to bed and not be as stressed out. So I think that that work first, then play motto can go a long way. That's a very helpful tip for all of us to have. What would your pep talk be to yourself 25 years ago, Gwen? So I think, I, so I was very insecure about my skills as, as a science student because my father has a PhD in physics and is uh, brilliant. And anytime he tried to help me with math or science homework, I would end up in tears crying. So I decided I just science is not for me. I can't do it. So I, you know, I went to college, I was a, a humanities major, but I took some science classes and always felt very passionate about science. And it was actually when I was a teacher, and I taught third grade math, that I realized that anybody can learn math and science, that it's not, it's not that you're good at one or the other. And while some things might come more naturally to some people than to others, I think that, you know, with determination and hard work, most people can learn just about anything that they set their sights to. And so I think, you know, if I were talking to my uh, 20 year old self, you know, back when I was an undergraduate at Barnard, I would have said, you know, don't be so scared, just give it a try, because if you try really hard, you might be surprised. And, and actually, my, um, my pre-med friends, uh, they did they encouraged me to take biology my senior year at Barnard, and I was terrified I was going to fail. And so because I was so worried about failing, I studied all the time and actually got an A. And that's when I realized that, like, okay, I can do this. It, so I, I think, you know, I would tell other people that if you want something, go for it, give it a try. That's amazing. And with that, I want to ask you one last very important one. What made you, who grew up in this country, and even if you studied South Asian studies, what made you travel to India, to Madurai, to <laughs> study Bharatanatyam? I mean, how rare is that? So I would say curiosity. Uh, so, you know, I, I and I, um, I think that this is common with you know, I, I started college in 1988, and at that time, I mean, the world has changed a lot. And I see with my own kids in high school, they have they have global themes. They teach students now about the whole world. But when I was a student, it was very much 
uh, European centered. And so we had European history and American history. And I learned nothing at all about the entire Eastern world in my K through 12 education. <laughs> so I got to Barnard and it was just like this whole other universe opened up and it was actually through I took a world religion class that had a focus on uh, with Jack Hawley, who is a you know a scholar of India, and I, I was just so amazed at this whole other part of the world with such a different philosophy. So that's and then um, I, I had a number of South South Asian friends, uh, a lot of uh, you know second generation where their parents had moved here and they were born here, and I think that, uh, you know, so they influenced me too, because I had the choice of going to Varanasi or to Madurai. And they sat me down and they said, Gwen, India is a lot like the US where if you go to the South, the people are nice. <laughs> if you go to the North, it's a lot tougher. <laughs> I didn't really know what to think about that, but I, I took that into consideration. And then Professor Miller also, uh, you know, impressed upon me that uh, Tamil is a Dravidian language. And so if I had wanted to do graduate studies in South Asian studies, if I had mastery of both uh, Sanskrit, which is Indo-European, and Tamil, which is a Dravidian language, I would have a much broader scholarly base to, to study from. So, so I was drawn with that allure also of learning. Tamil is a completely different language. Gwen, all I can say is that it's been such a fantastic experience listening to you, especially with the way that you have led life wholly, fully embraced it and continue to do so. So it's inspiring to all of us listening. And I've had the privilege of knowing you for so many years and we've worked on so many things together. So I applaud what you've been doing and I hope you inspire even more people around you. And thank you ever so much for joining us as our warrior queen. Well, thank you, Swati, and and just a you know little plug for Bharatanatyam dance that I do think that the rhythms of the dance and studying Bharatanatyam did help improve my ability to learn math and science. I think that I there's agree. a connection between music and and science, and so you know I would encourage everyone to make time for music and the arts in their lives as well. And thank you for this. Uh, this concept promoting women's empowerment, I read the emails and I do think it's important to just be getting that message and having it reinforced for all of us. Yes, and 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 you are one of them who has just buckled down, done amazing work. And I love the fact that you have five beautiful children. You are today running everything, your home, your careers, single-handedly, so bravo. And Thank you. I want other women to say, we too can do it if when exactly. And they can. They can. Yes. Anyone can do anything they set their sights to. So thank you on that note and look forward to having you maybe later in the year again. Yes. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Swati, for this Take opportunity. Care. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Bye bye. bye.